Welcome to Stories of Iceland. A quick note, if you have been following me or the podcast on Twitter, I am trying to get away from there. You can find me on Mastodon, where I have an account where I post exclusively in English. If you want to help me focus more of my energy towards this podcast, please support me on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. I just want to mention some of the supporters that have joined recently. Snoozton, M, and Lustig Pikus, Koizem. That makes two names that I doubt I actually pronounced correctly. Manfred Quarterhorse, Emily Passius, Kelly Shipley, Sarah Hughes, Jonathan Modell, and Grace Morgan. I'd like to thank all my supporters, especially Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is extra material there. But this is Stories of Iceland, and this is episode 45, The Beast of Katanis. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. I feel the need to go off on a little tangent before the main story. In the north of Scotland, there is a county called Caithness. In fact, it includes the northernmost parts of the island of Britain. This area of land has a very strong historic relationship with Norse culture. The biggest towns in the area are called Vik and Thorso. Both of these names are clearly Norse. Thorso is Thor's river, and Vik is the same word as Vik that forms the basis of the word Viking and the end of the word Reykjavik. This historic relationship was reinforced in 2016 when the county unveiled a new flag based on the Nordic cross, which you might know from, for instance, the Icelandic flag. The Caithness flag has a black background with a yellow and blue cross. The word Caithness is curious. The first part of the word refers to the Kati or Kat people, who were a Pictish tribe. The latter half is the Nordic word for headland or peninsula. In the sagas, the name is rendered as Katanis. Iceland also has a Katanis. It is on the northern shore of Kvalfjörður. If you have visited Iceland and travelled north from Reykjavik, you have most likely gone under this fjord. You might even remember the ugly blue aluminum smelter you passed by after going through the tunnel. Well, Katanis is tucked behind that ugly building. Most of the folktales I've told in this podcast are from an era that predates mass communication. Time and place are often ambiguous. 
the characters tend to be vague and even interchangeable. This story is different. For one thing, there are contemporary newspaper accounts about what happened. The case was further documented in a lawsuit that followed. The story has not been honed by telling and retelling. I have tried to stick to translation, but at times I have skipped over repetitive sections and added some context when I felt the story was unclear. This version of the story is taken from a folktale collection first printed in 1899. The Beast of Katanis In the summer of 1874, people on the shores of Kvalfjörður began to notice the beast or monster in a sizable pond near the farm of Katanis. The witnesses were mostly teenagers. They saw something rise to the surface of the pond before submerging again. According to their description, the animal seemed to be the size of a large dog. The story was dismissed by most people. There were more sightings in the summer of 1875, and now the beast seemed to have grown larger, about the size of a year-old calf. There were no more reports until the spring and summer of 1876 when the sightings became common. There were many witnesses, young and old. The animal was now described as being as large as a three-year-old bull, oblong with a long head and a six-foot tail, a whitish body and a red head. A reliable man said he had been riding near the pond when he saw the beast lying in a hollow. It took no notice of him. He saw that it had six long claws on each foot. Its legs were short, the mouth large with four sharp front teeth, and the creature also had floppy ears that could rise straight up. Witnesses saw neither hair nor scales on the animal. According to them, the head and tail had no skin so that nothing covered its muscles and innards. Those who saw the animal in the pond noted that it could swim very fast. The beast did stray away from the water, but at other times it spent days in the pond or on a small island in the middle of it. It never tried to chase after cattle or horses. Instead, it went after men, even on horseback. The creature was also seen going after sheep and managed even though it was described as being slower than an average horse, to corner and kill quite a few animals. As the beast became more and more daring and cruel, neighboring shepherd boys were too frightened to look after their flocks, unless it was in broad daylight and they had been supplied with a fast horse. Travelers began to avoid using the nearby road unless they were armed and in large groups. There were concerns that the beast might drive people away from the area and make it uninhabitable. Farmers began to grow uneasy and pressured the local officials to take action. These officials, in turn, decided to take the matter to the then governor of Iceland, Hilmar Finsen. They wrote to Reykjavik and explained their troubles to the king's representative in Iceland. They asked him to pledge support and financial aid so that they could kill the monster. The governor did not directly pledge any funds for their mission. 
Instead, he promised a rich reward if they brought him the head of the beast, either by capturing or killing it. The officials were mighty pleased with this offer and returned home so that they could organize their efforts. They called a large meeting of local farmers where it was decided to get the best available marksmen to kill the beast. Since the busiest time of year was approaching, they needed to act fast. Men were sent to find the marksman and bring him to Catanus. All went as planned, and soon the hunter arrived and set up a blind by the pond. At the same time, news began to spread, and many were eager to see the monster for themselves. There was even a well-armed group from Reykjavik who came to help fight and kill the beast. One night, when most people had gone to bed, the watchman heard a ruckus from the nearby road. This turned out to be the mason Sverre Rönnolson, along with a farmer. The men were in a bad way. Sverre looked as if he had been rolled around in mud, while the farmer seemed to have a broken jaw, broken teeth, as well as being scratched all over. Because of the dark, the men did not know what had occurred, whether they had been attacked by beast or man. Most people were of the opinion that they must have run across the monster, which had tried its best to kill them both. This seemed to be the perfect opportunity to get the beast, but as soon as the marksmen and crowds returned to the pond, it was nowhere to be seen. When everyone had left, the monster returned and chased after a shepherd boy who barely escaped with his life. This turned out to be the last time anyone saw the beast. The marksman spent the next two weeks watching the pond to no avail. When it seemed as though there would be no chance of getting a shot at the animal, it was decided that they needed a fresh approach. They began to dig a trench from the pond to the sea to empty it of water. This did not work as was hoped, since the pond turned out to be much deeper than expected. But since there was no sign of the beast, people slowly began to relax. Though no one doubted that the beast was dangerous and likely to kill both men and animals, many people were of the opinion that it had been spooked away by the crowds. There were quite a few theories about what had become of the beast. Some believed that there was an underground tunnel that led from the pond to the sea, and thus arrived at the conclusion that this had been a sea monster temporarily on land. More thought that a tunnel connected the pond to a larger lake further inland, where a similar monster had been known to dwell from times immemorial. If this is true, the cartonous beast might still return. All the witnesses had agreed on the description of the monster, and to this day there are still living people who saw the beast, so there can be little doubt about the truth of the tale. This book even includes two drawings, one of the monster itself and the other depicting the hunt. After the beast had disappeared, there arose a dispute between the marksman and the local officials about his payment. The officials claimed that since the beast had not been shot, they were not obliged to pay. 
This resulted in a lawsuit by the marksman who demanded his money. This processed through the court system. On the 18th of July, 1877, the lower court found in favor of the marksman, and the counties were ordered to pay him 96 kroner plus 4% interest. Unfortunately for him, this was overruled on the 30th of September, 1878, even though the officials admitted that they had been the ones to initiate his involvement. I went through a few contemporary newspaper accounts. There were obviously quite a few people who doubted the existence of the monster. Others were of the opinion that the monster could be real, because there might very well still be many undocumented creatures in the world. I would love to know what the governor of Iceland thought when he was asked to fund the monster hunt. I do imagine that when he pledged the reward for the head of the beast, he did not actually expect that he would have to pay anything. The story mentions two drawings that were made of the monster and the hunt. One seems to be an attempt to faithfully depict the beast itself. Copies of it were sold in a bookshop in Reykjavik at the time. The other drawing was a kind of caricature of the hunt. The Katanis beast is not one of Iceland's best-known monsters. There are quite a few such regional tales. I was in my twenties when I first heard the details, and it was from an unusual point of view. A friend of mine mentioned that his great-great-grandfather had been hired to shoot the beast and had then been denied his salary. That man was the oft-mentioned marksman, whose real name was Andres Fjellstedt. I should note that, according to my friend, there was no mystery about why the beast disappeared. It had never actually existed. The marksman's son, my friend's great-grandfather, was born in 1879, the year after the final ruling on the court case, and would go on to become a lawyer. My mind immediately raced to the connection that he might have wanted to defend people like his father, who had been denied justice. But this is just a fancy on my part. Other accounts of the Katanis beast include details about Andres. He had become known as a marksman when he shot seals that threatened the stability of a salmon-fishing river. He was also known to have a particularly good rifle that he had bought from England. A description of Andres says, rather ominously, that everything he pointed his rifle at ended up dead. That is it for today. Thanks to Vida von Hellstare, Emily Cooper, Emily Harper, Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. I am Olignesti Soliason, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 45, The Beast of Katanis.